This is Mary Snigelski, co-chair of the Lewis Brisbois, Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Practice. I am here with my amazing partner, Josh Cantro. He is the other co-chair of our practice group. And today we are excited to be here to talk about the Illinois Supreme Court decision in Latrina Catherine versus White Castle, a long-awaited decision. Yes. Uh, great to be with you, Mary. And we are here on the heels of this Cawthorn decision and also a decision by the Illinois Supreme Court issued a few weeks prior to that, which clarified the statute of limitations for BIPA claims. So, Josh, what is the statute of limitations? Well, according to the Illinois Supreme Court in the Tim's decision, the statute of limitations for BIPA is five years. And uh, the court there had to decide this issue because there is no statute of limitations provided for in the act itself. So was that also a certified question that went up to the Supreme Court? Yes, it was another certified question that the Illinois Supreme Court answered. Prior to that, it had generally been held that certain parts of BIPA were subject to a five-year statute of limitations, whereas other parts were subject to one year. Both parties in that case agreed that there should only be one statute of limitation that applies to all the BIPA sections. Well, it certainly sounds like the court agreed with them both during the oral argument as well as in its decision because it seems rather untenable to have a different statute of limitations for different provisions of BIPA. Yeah, and I think from that standpoint, the court got it right. I mean, obviously, on the defense side, we were encouraging courts to apply a one-year statute of limitations, but from the standpoint of uniformity, I think that having one statute of limitations applied to all sections of the statute makes sense. And is there some good news? Because it sounds like bad news that it's five years that these claims will go back, but is there silver lining here? Well, the silver lining would be in creating a five-year statute of limitations, it does provide the potential for more insurance coverage. If you have a five-year look-back period, more policies could be implicated and perhaps contribute to defending these very expensive cases or indemnifying in terms of settlements or judgments. Well, and I think that provides a really good segue for going into the White Castle case because that case was talking about what is the correct um, accrual point for a BIPA claim. And There, too, was a certified question, and the question came from the Seventh Circuit, interestingly enough, because the underlying litigation here is pending in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Illinois. It went up to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeal on this particular issue of when does a BIPA claim accrue. The Seventh Circuit then sent it over and asked the Illinois Supreme Court to look at it, and the Illinois Supreme Court accepted the question, and for some time it has been before them, and we've been awaiting this ruling. In fact, what's interesting about the case and the history behind it is that four of the seven judges on the Illinois Supreme Court who ultimately decided this question did not hear oral argument because they were not on the court at the time. Anyway, they came down with a decision that from a defense standpoint was pretty disappointing. I would absolutely agree with that. 
So fundamentally, I think the initial question is, what does it mean for claim accrual? Like, what actually does that mean? And I think the simplest answer is that a claim accrues when the wrong upon which the claim is based occurs. In other words, that is when the statute of limitations starts to run, when the claim actually accrues. That's correct. And so Illinois Supreme Court had to decide whether in the BIPA context, a separate claim can accrue each time a person's biometric information is allegedly collected, stored, used, disclosed, etc., in violation of the act. Correct. And the court held that there is a separate claim that accrues under the act each time that a private entity scans or transmits an individual's biometric identifier information in violation of Section B and D of the statute. So, Mary, to me, that sounds like, and please correct me if if you think otherwise, but it sounds like, let's say that someone was employed at a factory on January 1, 2009 through the current day, and they've been continuously employed in that factory during that time, and every day to get into work, they punch in using their, their fingerprint, and when they take a break, they punch out of work, and when they come back from their break, they punch in. And when they leave for the day, they punch out. So that's four times that their biometric information is allegedly being used in some way. And let's say that that person works 200 days a year for the past 15 years. It sounds like to me what the Illinois Supreme Court is saying is that every time that person punched in and out of work, there is a separate claim accrual under BIPA. I think that's exactly what the court said. So looking back with the scenario that you just gave, if that same employee had first punched in 15 years ago, that would have been outside a five-year statute of limitations. And the argument that White Castle made in this case is that, well, that is when that particular plaintiff knew or should have known that they had a claim, because that is when their biometric information, biometric identifier was, in fact, first collected. And we'll talk a little bit about it later, but in the dissent, the dissent in this case actually says that that is a very reasonable position because this information can only be collected one time. It might be verified down the line, but it's only collected and the person only loses control of it on one occasion. But that's not what the court found. The court found with your scenario that, yes, the last time that you punched in last Friday, that is when a claim accrues. And it also could have been you know, four years and three months ago when another claim accrued, which opens the potential to stacking of violations and damages, which the majority in this court did not seem to have a particular problem with. In my scenario, given that the Supreme Court a few weeks ago decided the statute of limitations issue is five years, These initial violations back in 2009 obviously would be outside even that statute of limitations. But let's say that the employee brought suit yesterday, February 21st, 2023. That would mean that all of the times that they punched in and out of work from February 23, 2018 forward would be within the statute of limitations. That's the Tim's decision. And... According to the White Castle decision, each one of those 
punch-ins could subject the defendant to a separate liability exposure. Correct. And if you add all of those numbers up, which I'm not going to do because I became a lawyer, so I didn't have to do that kind of math, it would be astronomical because you're talking about four punches a day. And that would be $1,000 for a negligent violation or $5,000 for an intentional violation. So somewhere between four and 20 grand per employee per day for a five-year period. And this is in a situation where you have hourly employees, just using the clock scenario, and those tend to be higher turnover industries. So you are talking about a potentially very significant class size and potentially astronomical damages if those damages were to actually be awarded. Right. And in that regard, there was somewhat of a silver lining in this White Castle decision. Would you agree with that? I would agree. I I think it is a very significant part of this decision because the Supreme Court, which has consistently said in every BIPA decision it's issued, that one needs to look at the plain language of the statute to determine the legislative intent, said in its decision that it also appears that the General Assembly chose to make damages discretionary rather than mandatory under the act. And the court emphasized that the plain language of the statute says that a prevailing party may recover, not that a prevailing party must receive $1,000 for negligent violation or $5,000 for reckless or intentional violation. It is discretionary based on the circumstances of an individual case. Now, I would note that language in the opinion, which appears starting on paragraph 42, for those of you who want to wade through this lengthy decision, I I think it is quite helpful and is a pretty big silver lining in there. But it's also fair to say that that is dicta, right? I mean, it's not really the, the holding of the case. It's not the holding of the case, but I think it is pretty consistent with what the Illinois Supreme Court has said in all of its BIPA cases, where there are other sections where it informs us what perhaps future rulings might look like in this area and certainly provides guidance as far as what the court seems to think this statutory interpretation should be. Yeah, I I agree with that. And I would also add that the Supreme Court in that paragraph 42 said, quote, we generally agree with our appellate court's recognition that a trial court presiding over a class action, a creature of equity, would certainly possess the discretion to fashion a damage award that, one, fairly compensated claiming class members, and two, included an amount designed to deter future violations without destroying defendants' business, end of quote. Now, that is helpful language, although I would set the bar a little bit differently than destroying a defendant's business. I mean, because that is just a scary thing. And the reality is, is that we have seen that very threat happen over the course of our handling BIPA cases for a long, long time, right? We have, and it's not just a threat. There have been businesses that have been destroyed and businesses that said, we're just going to have to declare bankruptcy. And I think that it depends on who is on the other side of those claims as to what's going to happen with that. But I think this language is very, very helpful because if you want to fairly compensate someone, 
you need to look at what actually happened in any individual case. And in a significant number, if not the vast majority of these cases, companies simply were not aware of BIPA. Should they have been aware of BIPA? Maybe, maybe not. Certainly that's an argument. But there are companies that were aware of BIPA or didn't think that BIPA applied because they had vendors saying, oh, don't worry about that. Or vendors saying, oh, this does not actually, this technology does not actually collect a fingerprint. It doesn't actually take a voice print. It doesn't scan a retina. It doesn't take a biometric identifier. And that it was very reasonable for a company to say, oh, okay, well, good, this doesn't apply. And some of them even talked to lawyers. And the lawyers did a legal analysis based on the information that was before them at the time and said, okay, we don't think that this applies. Now in the land of 2,000 class actions, everyone's going, oh, oh dear, maybe this does apply, although we haven't fully litigated these issues. So I think in those circumstances, trial court, a court of equity would look at it and say, okay, this is not a situation where we are going to award $1,000 for every time somebody punches in and out from work. Yeah, that would just be absolutely ridiculous. And for those of you outside Illinois, set against the backdrop of a state that has among the highest unemployment rate in the country, where businesses are fleeing where there is perceived to be not a business-friendly state to conduct operations in, the fact that the Illinois Supreme Court gave trial courts this discretion, I think, is very, very important. I think so, too. And I think that they really laid out a roadmap with the points from their decision so that a trial court will understand the points that it should be reviewing when looking at any award of damages, if damages should even be awarded. Exactly. And again, if damages should be awarded goes to the May language that you discussed earlier, and it goes to whether there are other available defenses in a case, including one that we've talked about at length in prior podcasts, whether the technology at issue is actually collecting biometric information opposed to some alphanumeric formula. Precisely. And that's something that has been essentially stayed. I mean, these cases are so many of them that have been stayed. We had one come off a stay today. We've started receiving motions to lift the different stays, which now that they're coming off the stays, litigation will ensue. And we are actually going to get to the meat of some of these cases and whether some of this technology is actually covered. And we're going to start addressing other issues such as the extraterritoriality of BIPA. If none of the stuff that is set forth in BIPA happens in Illinois, how can the statute reach into a completely different state and control conduct that's happening there? Exactly. And those are questions that we get from clients a lot. A big one that we have been receiving over the past few days since this decision came out is is the Illinois legislature going to finally fix BIPA? And we have seen evidence that they may. We had a state representative in Illinois introduce legislation the day before, and then it went to committee on the day that the White Castle case came down. So Representative Jeff Keicher, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, from um, DeKalb, Illinois, introduced a very sensible, I believe, amendment to BIPA. 
Right. And what Representative Keicher's amendment does is basically provide a cure period for companies who are allegedly in violation of BIPA, so who get notice of a claim that they may be in violation of BIPA, to cure that violation within 15 days. And if they do that, they are not going to be subject to liability under the statute. And I think that's really important. I think that it is as well, because it really does attain the goal of protecting the consumer or the employee in these situations. But Josh, then what happens if a company says that they've cured the violation, but in fact, they don't do that? Well, then they're in real trouble in that situation because they're going to be subjected to all kind of potential liability. Exactly. And the amendment creates yet another additional violation in that particular circumstance. So that's one of the reasons that I say it's a very sensible amendment here. And beyond that, it also just corrects some rather awkward language that has been contained in the statute and requires the Illinois Department of Labor to provide notice of BIPA so that people do have notice and companies do have notice. And anyone who is not aware of it right now would be once the Department of Labor were to get involved. I'm really hoping that this proposed amendment gets out of committee and gets on the floor of the General Assembly and eventually passes. We have seen prior efforts to amend BEPA over the past five, six years fail, unfortunately. But I am more optimistic this time because I think that now that these two decisions have come out and now that the Illinois Supreme Court has basically said to the legislature in the White Castle case, hey, legislature, it's up to you to fix this. We can only do so much as a court. All we can do as a court is interpret the statute. We cannot amend the statute. And so we recommend that you take a very hard look at amending the statute going forward. And it's pretty unusual, I think, for a court to be that direct to a legislature. I agree. It's incredibly rare. And that's how the court concluded the majority opinion, saying we respectfully suggest that the legislature review these policy concerns and make clear its intent regarding the assessment of damages under the act. And I think that was a great way to conclude the opinion. The opinion also contained a vigorous dissent uh, signed by three judges. So this was a four to three opinion that came out of the Illinois Supreme Court, and three judges dissented from this opinion and said basically that the first time a company violates BIPA, that's the only time that they should be subjected to liability under the statute. And it's an excellent, very well-reasoned dissent and talks about the reason for that being that you can only give up your biometric information once. That if I, for example, put my finger on a piece of technology and that piece of technology actually takes my fingerprint, I've now given up control of my fingerprint to company A. And company A has it. It's now out of my control. That is the violation, and that is when something should accrue. And any subsequent touching of this piece of technology is merely to confirm what's already been given up. Right. That summed it up very well, and it just makes a lot more sense to me. Now, look, we're biased. We're on the defense side. We don't prosecute BIPA cases. We defend them. But 
I think a fair, objective analysis would conclude that the dissent got it right here. And I think that the dissent also provides ammunition to the legislature to take a look at this statute. So in conclusion, we are very hopeful that the legislature will actually act on House Bill 3199, look at it very critically, and make some common sense amendments to this statute. So these two opinions leave us with answers to a lot of the questions that have been outstanding about BIPA. The Illinois Supreme Court has now weighed in four times on this statute over the past four years. As Mary mentioned earlier, a bunch of the cases have been stayed. Those stays are going to be lifted. We have lots of defenses that have not been resolved by courts that we look forward to pursuing and to aggressively defending our clients against uh, BIPA claims. Well said, Josh. Thank you very much for joining us. We look forward to being back with our next episode with special guest star George Manos on insurance and insurance coverage issues. Looking forward to that discussion. Thank you all. Thank you.